Season 2 of the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mack. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. You can find us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Twitter at Podcasting Light, and on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Dennis Parashi was called the best creator of mood, time, and place through light in the contemporary theater by the Cambridge Guide to American Theater. And he's back on the Casting Light Podcast for the second half of our interview. Last time we talked about the formation of Circle Rep and his collaborations with Lanford Wilson and Marshall W. Mason. And we also had a chance to discuss how to make night on stage. We still have a ton more to talk about with him, so let's get right to it. Thanks for checking out episode two of our interview with Dennis Parrishy. I haven't had a lot of people on the show that, that design straight plays right. anywhere near as much as you do. This is a little kind of involved question, but I think you'll understand what I mean. When do light sources in plays need to be fully motivated by location and time of day and reality, and when do they not, and when do you get to break the rule? Okay. How do you decide? Well, I decide in terms of what I perceive is the style of the writing, where the physical environment of the characters is almost as equally important as any other element in terms of the story, because it informs their behavior in some way or their situation. Then I think the sense that a lamp that's on on, over the table is lighting the table is important. One of the best examples I can think of is A Raisin in the Sun, in which the whole story is uh, based on the fact that this family is trapped in an environment that is a kind of prison. And as the text says, the sun doesn't get into their apartment ever. So there's, in a sense, they're deprived of a kind of uh, nourishment that we all should have in order for their lives to be full and rich. And the whole uh, action of the play is to get out of that place to a place where the sun shines on them all the time. So in that case, a pool of light over the table with a shadow or semi-shadow or coldness in the around it and then just a little hint of light through the window or two that you see that doesn't ever get really into the apartment and illuminate it is an important element to set up their situation at the beginning of the play so there i think it's very important to be as real as you can be under the circumstances and still see everything well and so forth. Uh, It's also a challenge to balance those two things because it's not a play where they can't really see that, you know, it's uh, living in a tenement apartment in New York where your windows look out on a tenement next door and you just get a little bit of light and yes, you turn on the lights in the middle of the day because it's otherwise it's a little gloomy in there. And that, that's important to, to everyone, all the characters in that play, uh, except the uh, one white man that shows up towards the end. It's that whole family is, is struggling to get out of this prison that they are in. You know, it's not a literal prison, but it's a prison that society has put them the in. Economic in their, prison. Their economic prison, yeah. yes. Now, there are other things where uh, this kind of relates to, to that uh, night scene I was thinking of this. That is another example of treating night. But anyway, uh, I did Crimes of the Heart, which is a kind of 
light-hearted comedy about a dysfunctional family where the three sisters have all gone off in, in different ways and they're, they're, uh, their grandfather is about to die and they come back to the family home and they're trying to deal with this. And of course, it's, it's one of those in which eventually they learn to acknowledge their love for each other, even if there are conflicts and that kind of thing. I mean, it resolves in, in a, in a uh, very uh, happy way, but it's in a kitchen. And we have one scene where the, the, it's all at night and in the middle of the night in the kitchen. And we have various times of day. And uh, the, the night scene in the kitchen is supposedly illuminated by... The lamps in the in the room. There's some sconces and a, a, a lamp hanging over the uh, the table. Well, the comic character of the play. It's not about that environment. It's about the three sisters and their emotional dysfunction and their their uh, relationships to each other. And in that case, the night scenes should look as if that kitchen is filled with light. But it doesn't matter that it come specifically from and be limited and, you know, fade out or towards the edges of things you want because they're running all over and it's kind of almost farce like in its quality. It really has to do with the kind of uh, play it is. I, I just did a new play downtown, a very small production, you know, one of those theaters with a nine foot ceiling, you know. <laughs> uh, sort of back to my beginnings at the La Mama. <laughs> uh, but it takes place in a, a jail. It takes place in a couple of different apartments. It takes place in the office of a TV producer who, who runs the a news division. It takes place in the governor's mansion. But all we have is a oval on the floor and a few pieces of furniture. And there is no, I mean, this could be, uh, the apartment could have windows going through it and stuff, but it's not about that. It's not about the reality. It's, what it's about is the uh, suffering of the main character in her life, how she was abused as a child and never given a chance to. So it's all basically no color light and harsh side light and stuff. It's very kind of towards expressionistic rather than realistic. And we don't do anything that's realistic except vaguely there are hints of the uh, bars in the cell that she she inhabits uh, in parts of the play. Uh, she's, you know, been convicted of murder and she's on death row. That's about the only thing that is sort of realistic, but even that is kind of always there as a kind of she's really in prison her life is kind of like the characters in uh, raisin in the sun but for different reasons has she's never been able to get out of a really bad environment she's never had the chance and she's made a lot of bad choices it's not as if she, but anyway so it's uh, suddenly it's pale no color blues and a, a couple of uh, very pale greens and stuff and a lot of white light and it's uh, very little front light and that kind of thing. And there's no hint, really, of uh, realism anywhere in it. It's just we're in this place and it's slightly different and it's this place and there's a transition. They move the furniture, lights come back up. Most of the time, they're not a lot different from the last scene either. So we know that they're in a different scene because the furniture's been rearranged and there's a different cast of characters on stage. So it's nothing to do with uh, the place or the time of day or anything like that. So, so something like that, that, I mean, again, I just feel like that's another masterclass there in script analysis. How long did it take you, like how long did you, was your tech? You know, to be able to craft that, the kind of stuff that you're talking about and not using front light and... You know. Well, uh, 
The tech was about three days. In a, in a different uh, situation, it might have been might have spent more time on it, but limited in time and limited in use of the theater. And there aren't that many instruments, which makes the difference, right. you know. So, there, you know, when you have forty instruments to deal with, and you make choices of like this, these kinds of lights, and I won't do that, those other kinds of lights. So it was really a couple, three days. But it was already planned out, as in a sense. I knew what I was doing, and I had a clear idea of where the cues were going to come and what they had to do. That's why I, I was going to say that that's sort of the key to that, because your analysis is so good, and you know what you're doing walking in. You know what exactly. you're going yes. for. You're not right. making it up as you go along. Right, exactly. You can actually do something yes. with that kind yes. of highly stylized right. Uh, you know, production. You know, there are occasions of, still that, you know, every once in a while... There, things aren't very well defined in advance, and you kind of have to put something up that you, and then see what happens and deal with it. Uh, I did have a, one of my favorite shows, uh, Circle, uh, did it, The Baltimore Waltz, which is another AIDS play, but in that one, I talked to the director about what she had in mind, and she said, oh, it's too early. It was, this was before, and I, the reason I did, you know, started so early in this particular case was because I knew I was going to be away most of her rehearsal period, so I wasn't going to be able to sit there and see what she was doing. And it is a play that has these, uh, I don't know, 25 or 30 scenes, some of which are only half a page long and, and barely maybe one or two or three pages long. And it's very uh, spare writing with doesn't say anything about where we are or time of day, it just, an event happens in each one of them. And so there was a lot of things I didn't, how is she gonna do all these scenes which have to kind of go one after the other without, and you can't do a big scene change and keep this going with all, you know, it has to just flow along. Like I was trying to find yeah. out, you know, at least did she have a approach to this and stuff. So the only thing I knew, which she said was, See, the playwright says it's kind of dreamlike and, and stuff, so think about that. So I had to put up a plot that would do a lot of things and cover the space and give me a lot of choices that, of what I could do. And it wasn't until I got back and saw the thing that I could say, okay, now I can do this for this scene, and now I see what's happening. I don't like to work that way, but sometimes you have to, <laughs> sure. and, you know. And I mean, sometimes, sometimes, especially on, like you've done so many new shows, sometimes yes. the script's not done. Exactly. That's uh, that's yeah. very that can often be the case. Or, yes. or or it's an evolving script yes. where they come in with many many pages. Well, that that reminds me of one of interesting stories. One of Lanford's uh, plays, uh, the Mound Builders. The first rehearsal of that got all the actors together and Marshall and Lanford and uh, we didn't have any scripts and uh, Marshall announced that Lanford hadn't written anything yet <laughs> but they were gonna he, he was gonna describe to us the characters and what happened and so the first week of rehearsal the characters were gonna improv about their characters and their inner life and what their past was and this kind of thing while Lanford wrote. Wow. So after a week, he had a first act. And then a week and a half or two later, he had the second act. So it was kind of, 
I mean, he had given us a lot of detail about the circumstances and where we were and, and stuff and what was going to go on. And then there was parts of it. Uh, it calls for uh, slide projections in interludes between scenes. And we knew they were going to be there, but those were not written until the previews. So uh -huh. in one preview, we would suddenly have some slides for this section. And then the next preview there with whatever dialogue went along with those things. So and, was, and uh, what show did that turn into? Uh, the Mound Builders. The Mound Builders. Is the right, name right. of it. Yes. Wow. Tell me about the development of your style of lighting design and your workflow. I know you're, you like the task list a lot. I do. Uh, mainly to keep me organized. I had rather a uh, odd training. Let's go back there. Northwestern had two quarters of stage lighting. The first quarter was electricity, <laughs> units, you know, and that kind of thing, and how you circuit and something about dimmers and stuff, sort of the, all those basic things you kind of have to know what the tools you're going to use to, to light a show. And then the second one was, well, how do we go about do it? Was, uh, well, you read the script and you note what the script says it wants uh, a sunset in this act and you know you make and then you figure out how to do all those things and that was about it <laughs> now the one thing about it though was that the, the teacher who was a very old man uh, at the time uh, Theodore Fuchs who had been a big person in stage lighting in the 30s <laughs> and stuff but was way out of date as I quickly discovered was an inspiring teacher in spite of the kind of really basic material and then I you know we never made a plot we didn't really deal with he just sort of described things and I just said oh this is, sounds really great you know I can do things with this and that's really interesting and so I just uh, went to uh, Alvina Krauss who taught acting at Northwestern she ran a uh, non-equity uh, summer theater which she would take people from Northwestern actors and whatever and we would do nine shows in uh, ten weeks you know, one of the really uh, fast stuff. And uh, all of it was, uh, you know, you do Shaw, we did Pirandello, we did you know, Shakespeare, and, and every once in a while there'd be something light thrown in there. But uh, it was a kind of training ground for her. And so that's where I took what Ted Fuchs had taught me and figured out how to <laughs> kind of do it, you know, as, and I was my own electrician, of course, and running the board and stuff. And, uh, you know, great, actually great experience. But then I came to New York and I had to then learn enough how to draft a light plot and all those things. So I went to uh, someone probably uh, told me about this and I don't remember who, uh, maybe someone I was working with uh, I did work at the the YMHA for a while, who did a lot of dance at that time. And there was a lighting designer who worked there on the uh, various shows that came in when he wasn't doing uh, opera and stuff. So he may have told me the Lester Polikoff Studio and Forum of Stage Design, which was the uh, purpose of the studio was to prepare people for the union exam. So that's where I went and I learned how to draft and how to draft the plot and then uh, took the lighting uh, courses in which working designers would come in for like three weeks at a time and they would say, here's a play, we're going to do this. And then they would, you know, sometimes lecture on color and stuff and people like Tom Skelton was there. Uh, later on, I didn't uh, take classes while he was there. John Gleason uh, would teach, and there were a number of other, you know, working designers who would come in when they didn't have anything else, 
you know, they had the time to do it and do it was all, you know, three hours every Saturday or something. And so uh, there I started to pick up a lot of the details and how to go about it in the process. And eventually, uh, as I started to do shows with uh, Marshall off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway, rather, I began to try to apply that. What I discovered uh, along the way at some point, uh, fairly early on, uh, one of the early shows at uh, Circle, was that uh, I would start laying out a plot because I knew I had to do this, that, and the other, and I had lists of those things, and I'd you know, figured out, and I had notes about them. But the notes were intended to be scattered. <laughs> So I would start laying out a plot and I would get to the end and discover I had used too many units or I couldn't fit them on the dimmers we had, you know, 18 or 12 or 24, whatever it was, uh, this particular show. And I discovered that I had to do something, you know, because suddenly it had had to be get to the Emmy the following morning or something. And uh, I'm going to have to stay up all night and figure out what to do. You know, what can I cut? What can I rearrange? And kind of do it over again. And uh, somehow that experience and uh, probably a couple experiences, really, I said, I've just got to make a list. So I, I started doing what you refer to as a task list, which was just this design requires this kind of front light that requires moonlight from stage left so that when I got to turning that into a practical plot that could be used to make the design, I would have a structure. I would do this part, and then I would do this part, and this part, and along the way somewhere in there, I decided that uh, what I also needed to do was to do a rough hookup first, because at that time, I always had too few dimmers. And I mean, yes, I might get the, all those things in a more orderly fashion and stuff, but I also had to keep track of how many units I was using and uh, how they would fit on 12 dimmers or 16, whatever it was. So those things were just a, a way to make that final paperwork easy to do. If I'd analyzed it in enough detail in advance and then made a list for myself, which sometimes turned into uh, little diagrams of angles and stuff, uh, more like a magic sheet, then I could draft it quickly and accurately and keep order to it. And if I ran out of units, I could figure out, okay, if I do this and draw, then move those over there, I can use my six by nines over there and put the four and a halfs there. And before I got too far where I'd have to do the whole thing over, you know, and that's part of what I, I'm trying to teach is not so much. Yes, I can teach some about the art and how to uh, approach a play, but it's also you've got to have a process that makes it practical and know what you need to do to prepare so that when you get to turning it into actual instruments and a control seam and stuff and color, you can do that because you know where you're going. You've decided what is needed. Do you still, um, yeah, I know you still work it all out on paper and stuff like that. Do you still draw by hand? I don't anymore. I was probably a little slow in switching to vector works or anything else. Uh, and I know I resisted it for a while just because there's something about drawing and stuff. And uh, 
I got to the point, it was kind of a little contest with myself. How fast can I do a plot? Because, you know, it had gotten to the point, a routine. So that it didn't take me very long unless the plot was really complicated. And then I finally figured, maybe I should learn about what's going coming down. Well, it's also talking about, a, you know, a rough hookup and keeping track of your inventory. When Lightright came out, or the earliest version of it, what was it called? Uh, ALD. ALD. ALD yeah. You know, suddenly you didn't have to keep track of something that was done for you, you know, right. which simplified the whole process. So so I finally said, I'm, I'll, I'll just give up on drawing by hand anymore. It just uh, saved so much time. But you still do it. You still do um, stuff yourself. You don't farm everything out. No, I you do most draw. of it myself these yeah. days. Most of the time, there's not money available for assistance and stuff. And once in a while, I have to have someone do it just because I got too much to do. But sometimes I felt like if I don't do it, well, this is you know silly. Actually, I mean, you did the burn this plot for me, so. Uh, worked out fine so, <laughs> but i still sometimes feel like uh, if it's my work i should do it directly right. and and also there's a problem of communicating what you want to an assistant clearly enough that there's not a lot of uh, problems you know no no that's not what i meant you know uh, uh, that kind of thing i get that uh, totally yeah. mm-hmm. can we move on to athol Fugard? yes certainly uh you know I, I feel like it's tough to say sort of what the the more critical collaboration that you've had was but you know i mean there's looking at the work that you did with him and both bozeman lena and my children my africa and the captain's tiger and valley song road to mecca and the road yes road to, road to mecca yeah what what's sort of the first thing that comes to mind and tell me a little bit about how you developed a relationship with him what happened and 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 with athol was that uh the uh producer of burn this was going to produce road to mecca in the city and he recommended to Athol, who had done a couple productions out of the city of the show, and never been quite happy about uh, some uh, some of the results, uh, that uh, he talked to me and John Lee about you know doing the show. So we uh, met with him at the, the producer's office and talked about it, and he told us what he had in mind or what he didn't think worked in the previous productions, and we said. It you know it was certainly exciting to both of us, and we said, okay, let's go ahead and do it. And there's only one other director I can think of who was as easy to talk to about anything as Athol. Athol seemed to automatically want everybody to contribute in some way. He'll talk to anybody. He would uh, during rehearsals uh, ask the opinions of the interns sometimes about things that were going on, so that you always felt that you were part of the. The group, not that he's the director and he'll do his part and you do your part, but you were all part of making it together. He was really uh, wonderful that way. And uh, it was easy to communicate with him. So uh, that first one was a little tentative, but, you know, I immediately felt I I knew what he wanted and what the play needed. So we, you know, discussed it at some length at some early on. And then it went on from there. And he uh, wanted me to continue doing the shows in, in the States that he he, he was uh, going to direct in the future for those 10 years or 12 years that we were working together. And it wasn't until he kind of semi-retired, he, he declared he wasn't going to direct anymore and uh, that he was going to kind of retire, maybe just write shows, which I think he's mostly done since that that time uh, 
that you know we stopped working together but they were always an interesting uh, process where everyone was kind of together in, in what was going on what's the one that you would pick as the one you'd want to talk about it's kind of between playland and uh, valley song both of which were so dependent on lighting that somehow there was no real scenery in either case well, Playland had a kind of scenery. It had a wall of uh, old posters, you know, like you find on uh, building sites. And there was a little platform and a couple of uh, other minor things. But it was backstage, as it were, at an amusement park with, you know, with uh, Ferris wheels and games, you know, the, the things that you would find in an amusement park. It's about, uh, what is it, the fifth commandment? Thou shalt not kill. I don't know if it's the fifth, but it's... <laughs> Basically, and the soldier who had who had been uh, in the South African army had been involved in the uh, struggle against uh, ANC and uh, various other insurgents in South Africa. So he had killed and witnessed killing and stuff, and that had sent him over the hill, as it were. I mean, he was well PTSD is, is a version of it, and uh, an old uh, black man who worked for Beck sort of on the edges of the amusement park to clean up and stuff like that, who had been at some time uh, in the past jailed for murder, had finally been released. So this soldier has come to get this black man to forgive him for his part. And it's a very interesting piece, but it goes from scenes between the two of them where the, the, the soldier is trying to bear his soul and the the black guy is kind of uh, reluctant to get involved in this. And then there are scenes where the soldier goes off and he's sort of, in a sense, is running through the uh, amusement park taking these things. And that scene had very little dialogue. It had just uh, uh, sound effects of... You know, all the sound effects you can, you know, where they have all the games and stuff and that oh, kind right. of thing. And he, was, he would run back and forth to various places, and it was all kind of mime and it had this incredible soundscape to it. And then I had to create a sense that we were in a different place and there's lights flashing and stuff like that. And it was quite an interesting play and uh, went from, you know, this kind of frenetic craziness that everyone, it was also New Year's Eve. The new year was coming on, and he wanted to kind of clean this slate. It was quite interesting and challenging, and then, you know, and we did it in a couple different versions. In one version in uh, San Diego at the uh, La Jolla was producing it, but there was a whole uh, a set with all these uh, pieces that went up and actually a kind of outline of a roller coaster in the back, and these uh, pieces that were like half arches, and the, all those arches had... Uh, lights in them which would flash and, and and scroll you know so that there was a lot of things going it was just a fascinating show to work on and the, and the the material was like you know relevant to our stuff in uh, Afghanistan in a sense yeah. and or to uh, Vietnam and and so many things it just uh, so you were simultaneously creating this really frenetic kind of uh, Carnival Barker yes, kind right, of atmosphere exactly. with this massively intense personal drama. Right, exactly. Which was, you know, that all all of which was in the course of one night, you know, here at the, it ended, I believe, with the uh, closing of the uh, amusement park, I believe, is at the end. And the, the two finally uh, reveal themselves and their traumas they've gone through and the damage that has been done to them by being involved in killing other human beings. It's, uh, what was the progression that it followed? 
Well, I tell you the truth, I can't quite remember where we end. It's been a long time since I've thought about that. It starts, however, at sunset, which uh, one of the two characters, I mean, it, this is backstage, as it were, uh, behind the scenes, this first scene and the, the, the talk, and one of them says, it looks like someone dropped an atomic bomb like the sky is in flames or something. So it's there's already a kind of ominous sense mm -hmm. of what is wrong with these people and this guy, the soldier who's trying to get to know this guy, but he's, he hasn't, he can't yet reveal what's, what's bugging him and stuff. He's just uh, trying to be buddies with this older black man who's in the, you know, South Africa who would never have had a relationship with a white man that was, you know, uh, comfortable, so. And, that, and unfortunately, I can't really remember what the uh, epiphany is. There is there is one, and it's uh, escaped me at the moment. No worries. Moving on to a completely different place. Yes. And another one I know that you're working on with Mike, Penn & Teller. That's a segue. Yeah, yeah that's a segue. <laughs> <laughs> well, Penn & Teller was a really uh, interesting experience because... Uh, Totally different kind of lighting, which mostly they wanted, you know, they, when I first met them, they just said, well, I want, mostly we don't want it to do any tricks or anything. We just want light on the stage. And most of the time we want to let the audience see what's going on. If they can see it, if they look, if they look and can see it, let them see it. He didn't want anything special except once or twice. There are a couple, you know, that, uh, the one classic one they have where they have a shadow of a rose and he cuts the rose and the petals fall, which all I had to do there, they, they had all of that. They had the light source, they had the everything set up. I don't know how that works. <laughs> so, and of course, they never revealed any of it. You know, if you happen to somehow come across it, yes, but I've never really tried. I'd rather it remain mysterious. But anyway, it was all about, uh, we don't want to, we don't want to pretend that we're hiding things so you know they wanted just a lot of light you know so and it was mostly about deciding what was this focus for certain things and it was when the big shows came along there was one where they wanted a misdirection with the lighting where we had a uh, one of the the trusses fall down at the point in which they're on the middle of the stage just changing things swapping the bag swapping the bag that. yes exactly i saw that so of course, then, then, then the tower falls down a second time because right, yes, <laughs> because they're going to explain to you how the trick worked. Uh, exactly. So, it was it was a lot of fun, but it was kind of you had to uh, just sort of hang out with them and see what they needed, and they weren't always sure what they w wanted until they did it a few times, and then they said, "Well, okay, now that doesn't work. Let's try this." <laughs> there was one where uh, I don't know if they uh, ever repeated this anywhere else where uh, all these animal traps all over the stage and they're trying to figure out how what order they should be in and where they were and how how uh, teller would uh, set them all off and stuff which was just sort of sitting there and waiting for them to figure out what they were doing <laughs> and there was a lot of incarnations right like you started with them yes at, like west side arts which yeah, is a very tiny at, tiny at west little side theater. arts and you know basically in a basement yeah and it was very uh small scale everything and uh, very direct and that it was just fun to do because they're, they're such funny guys and they have interesting stuff so it was kind of 
let's hang out. And that's really the way you have to work with them. I remember, though, Penn saying something about when you came aboard and stuff like that, and he said, you know, we always just did the show. Yeah. And all of a sudden, we had these people around us, and it was like, well, how was a show for you? How was a show for you? And he said, all of a sudden, you know, we had people who were only concerned about the lighting and, and that that was such a big step for them. I remember yeah, him saying Yeah, it was because they had just, you know, you know, college campuses and yeah. various clubs here and there pretty much did everything themselves. So it was a And they always difference. had an interesting collection of people around. And I, here's a really quick story. I don't think you were there when they were doing, it was like the second time around because it had done Broadway mm-hmm. and then... I think it was I think it was the refrigerator tour, which uh-huh. then went out and did a national right. tour. And there was this screen that was up there that was really and you have to remember how long ago this was, but it was like a screen like would be in a like a I don't know, a restaurant or something. Like we'd all had individual letters. And there was some gag that what what was typed up on the screen and then it somehow got revealed or something. But there was no way to navigate around the screen with this tiny little laptop. Again, this is probably 1990, probably 1990 yeah. or something like yeah. that. So really primitive, way before people even had email and, like I said, walking around mm-hmm. with, with computers. And after the show one night, there was somebody in the audience, and he could see – it was obviously a friend of, of Teller, and he could see he was having trouble – navigating on that screen so the guy jumps up on stage after after the show and he says to tell her he said let me let's see if i can do something here and, and help you out with this and i said excuse me do you know what you're doing and because again this is all so yeah. low tech and teller said to me that's bill gates He's a, the, the, the guy who invented windows you just asked him if he knew what he was doing with a computer I had, I had of course, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, I had no idea who Bill Gates was at the exactly. time. Exactly. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you were with them for a while. Uh, for a while, yeah. I did uh, this couple of tours and the, the twice uh, in Broadway. I mean, I didn't do the last one, of course, and uh, did them off Broadway. At, you know, at the West Side Arts, and then briefly they were at uh, on at Forty Second Street and uh, Theater Row. There was, yeah, I think that's where briefly. Refrigerator Tour was. Yeah, all I remember about that is, is getting a glass color from uh, Jules. Oh, right. You went and right. to the and, and got uh, deep blue glass deep for our strip lights because uh, <laughs> any other color just burned out <laughs> instantly. And uh, what about lately? I know you've been a member of uh, People's Light and Theater Company since 2004. Yeah. Well, that's a, a large part of what I've done lately. It's kind of, in its way, a better run version of Circle. Circle was great, but administratively and financially, it was always in trouble. It was always a difficulty. And this is a very much the, a similar kind of situation where they always have enough money. I mean, they don't aren't extravagant. They just know how to raise money and they do what they've got a very definite vision of what kind of shows they are. And uh, as I said, uh, actually, the artistic director uh, for... Uh, People's Light, uh, Abigail Adams is the other d- director that I uh, work with. It's just like Athol, always inviting your input and uh, easing. Really, well, she always asks me to do her shows because she we work together so well, and uh, it's been a quite uh, wonderful experience working down there. As the the work is always well put together, and some shows are better than others, but they're mostly you know really good tries at them even the the worst of them that's uh, 
and uh, visually uh, design wise uh, as I said it's not extravagant but they always put in you know they have enough resources and uh, a great staff so the, the results are always uh, good and do you feel like I mean there's sort of a natural progression I think in our business where right. when Circle Rep was together it really was hey let's put on a show yes. you could do something like that with a bunch of friends but now everything is more sophisticated it and, is and yes, people know how to is. run those kinds of theater, you know, it's not everybody's made every mistake you can make. So, <laughs> yes. so people learn how that's, to run those kind of companies right. without going bankrupt right. every exactly. other year and, yeah. and all that kind yeah. of stuff. That's probably true. Well, and there's, yeah. you know, there's, there's professionalization and specialization, you know, you exactly. know people, yes. you know, very much. Yes. You know, when you have a, a development staff, right. You don't have your actors running right. the, the right. publicity exactly. department anymore. Yes. Right. Like the rep was. Yeah. yeah. Now, I know the Rainmaker was kind of a standout for them, right? It, it did very well, yes. I've, they've had some some really good shows. Uh, the most recent one that I'm most happy with was uh, we did Cherry Orchard uh, probably a year ago right now with uh, David Strathairn and uh, uh, Mary McConnell, who you may know is the star of Major Crimes on uh, whatever network that is. It's, uh, she's, quite, she's quite wonderful. And David Strathairn, who's practically in... Uh, four or five movies a year and uh, it's very great actor so there are you know people who are willing to come down for no money and right. for special things and stuff and it was a really good production of cherry orchard all around anybody ever come to those and, and want to move them somewhere or? uh i don't know if that's well there was one show that uh people were interested in moving that i know about which eventually got moved but of course uh, they changed everybody <laughs> you know, new director, new actors, uh, you know, and that kind of thing. And uh, we were someone to wanted to bring one of our productions to Israel, but that they never got the money for it. So they don't, the, the company is interesting because they literally don't care. They don't want to come to Broadway. They, that's not their goals that they want to just produce good theater. Yeah right there where they are and mo most of the actors live in the area and uh, have you know families and a whole life there and uh, in the suburbs of philly so tell me about the book that would be illuminating the play available from heineman press heineman yes on um, amazon <laughs> on amazon and uh, yes at amazon many years ago in the 80s at some point i had this uh, well, part of it was, you know, as you start teaching and you do a lot of teaching, you've got to figure out what you're teaching and how to teach it. So I did a lot of uh, thinking on and off during uh, over the years about how best to present a subject or how best to communicate to the students about various aspects of what was important to me. So I, I would write out things, you know, thoughts about uh, concept thoughts about analyzing script the things that you know that were important to me and try to f organize so I could teach it and then at one point I said you know maybe I could write about this and I started writing about it and I you know half a dozen times and I would get so far and then I would be busy or I'd drop it for a while and I'd come back to it and then I'd write it and rewrite it from the start <laughs> And, and write the same thing again. And what I found was I was getting awfully philosophical and intellectual, which seemed to me the wrong, somehow not quite right, that this is, while we can 
help communicate ideas. I don't think lighting can directly communicate uh, significant ideas. It, it can, uh, you know, point perhaps at certain things to suggest and support uh, support yeah. yes yeah. Uh, and I was uh, went to uh, did a show in Seattle and the the assistant there kept asking me about how I lit shows and why I did certain things uh, you know I, we would spend sit down and talk about it for an hour and so she said you know you know, no one talks about this stuff you should uh, write it down and so I began thinking about picking it up again and doing it and I tried a few times and it took me a while and I suddenly at uh, People's Liked one of the early shows somehow that came back in my mind because uh, I had seen her recently in, in, in Seattle and she said what about the book have you written, written it yet <laughs> and of course I hadn't really gotten anywhere and so I said oh well it was on my mind when I got to this other show and suddenly I realized that what I should do is just describe the process as I went through it and what I did and that that would be better than ideas about how to design. Uh, it, I didn't want to write an Robert Edmund Jones' dramatic imagination, which is poetic and, and stuff, but doesn't seem relevant to actually doing it. You know, it's inspiring, but somehow it doesn't get to what, what's important. So, and also I had gone through a period when I said, well, how does Tom Skelton do that? How does John Gleason, you know, see a show and say, well, how did they come to that? And, and I couldn't find anywhere that anyone really talked about it or had written about it in any way. Even uh, Gene Rosenthal's book, interesting things, but it's not real, there's no, why did she do? this particular thing in this show and stuff it isn't it isn't there and i kept wanting to do that and uh cynthia who was my friend in seattle said wanted to know the same thing so okay i'll do that so i just sat down and started in fact uh, i wrote most of the book during uh or a large part of the book during text when there was you know <laughs> all those times when oh. nothing's happening holding for uh, automation yes <laughs> you know it was just I'm going to do these shows as, because they stand out in my mind as being significant in some way. And I'm going to describe as much as I can the process. Obviously, I'm looking back on it and making judgments and selections. But what, what I went through and I did this and I did this and I did this. That's been a frustration for me for most of lighting media, that they say what was done but not why. Yes, exactly. They never go into the why. Yeah, it's uh, kind of hard to talk about, too, in some cases, I'm sure. Anyway, uh, that's kind of how the book came about and what I had in mind. My only regret is uh, I had originally meant to have a chapter about Athol's work in there, and I ran out of time. You know, the book was due, and I, there was a whole new chapter that I had I'd started but hadn't got very far, and I just had to cut it out. But he wrote the forward, right? Yes, he did write the forward. He was very gracious. Um, I think we're kind of winding down. Uh, but one thing I really want to ask you is, are there, are there any things, whether it's shows you saw or, or things that you experienced, anything that you wish people who are working now could experience or see that you did? 
something that you found really inspiring that you'd wish you could share with people, whether that was a, a, a not theater-related, whether it was completely theater-related. Well, there is one that uh, was a great uh, inspiration to me, which was uh, the original production of Man of La Mancha, which was stunning. The opening of that was something like, well, it was new in the city and you know, just starting out, but it was the theatricality of it and the shock of this giant uh, stairway coming down out of nowhere and these people and just it was, it was so magical that uh, uh, it, it just showed me again what lighting can do to transform I mean besides it was a, a you know combination of set and lighting but it was uh, after that I mean most of the set stays the same but it, it was the lighting that then made the the magic of being in Quixote's world and then in the back in the dungeon and stuff it was extremely uh, exciting to watch i mean it's one of the highlights of my uh, early year sets howard bay right yeah howard, howard bay. bay yeah that and the other thing i mean this is again just inspirational for me it was there are some moments that just uh, sum up what is happening in the play in a very simple way that are just stunning. This was on the road and before I got here, I saw the touring version of West Side Story in Chicago. And you know, you see the tenements and the fire escapes and all of that at one point and you get to the duet of uh, the two of them. Uh, it's the kind of Romeo and Juliet balcony scene and you know you have all these tenements and and stuff and then suddenly it dissolves into a starry sky which was i believe uh, gene rosenthal's lighting at just again it was like that's what lighting can do in a sense or design can do because it is obviously a combination of things it just was another reinforcement of my uh, desire to be part of this you know that's why we got in it yeah exactly do you have any parting shots, Mike? For Dennis? Yeah. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about where you're teaching and, and that stuff, and then just kind of where do you find the state of what students are bringing to it now than, than say, when you first started teaching? Well, I find that uh, in the last uh, 10 years or so, especially at, at Purchase, that the students are very sophisticated about the technology and you know uh, what you can do with moving lights uh, LEDs uh, all of that stuff and often there's one or two students who know more about that than I I do you know and if I had you know wanted to I could very well get good advice from them probably about what piece of equipment I should use for such and such uh, you know, obviously there are other places, but they, they seem to know all of that. But they don't seem to know how to uh, read a script most of the time. And part of what I'm trying to emphasize is analyzing the script. And I must say, however, in the last two years, the students are better at that. And I don't know why, what's changed, or whether it's the, the people we've, uh, who've come to purchase are just better prepared for that or not, uh, or maybe something in our program has changed and they've been doing better. But uh, there's still a tendency to want to 
find a technical solution to a design to put in some scrollers, put in some moving lights, put in LEDs when they're not, they really don't have a strong reason to do any of those things. Or, you know, the reasons are doubtful. It seems to be a tendency to uh, depend on the flexibility of some of that stuff. This will get a good design out of it. But if you don't know why you're doing it and what, what purpose it is, then it's just more toys to play with. And you're having to decide in the theater, which <laughs> it's too late uh, most of the time, what's I think especially at that level. Yes, right? at that I mean, level, yes. I, I think for students, you have to make strong choices and and know what you're doing ahead mm-hmm. of time. And The other thing that uh, has always bugged me, and I haven't found a way to break them really of this habit, is uh, so many, well, it purchase, let's, let me not say, I don't know about a lot of other places, but it purchase. They get so much uh, support when they're actually designing. They have all these lights they can use they have the best boards or um, really good boards etc etc and uh, plenty of dimmers and uh, I worry about them going out and having to do oh I've only got 24 dimmers what do I do now you know or the uh, the, the tendency to have every unit is its own control which uh, I mean I, I suppose in an there's a sort of ideal of maximum flexibility there, but it seems to me most of the time it doesn't matter, you know, that you, there are other ways of thinking about it. Well, so, some of that has to also be just when you were doing shows with, say, 24 dimmers, a dimmer costs a lot more money. Uh, exactly. And, and, and I, now, I, I know yeah, that. It just feels yeah. to me like... Uh, but it's, but it's like the than, computing power on your phone. You know, the phone well, that everybody true. has in their pocket, yes. you know, 10 years ago would have cost 10 <laughs> times what it, you know, what it does now. And I, That's true. But I, but, I, but I think also what you're saying is it still comes down to a clarity of the, of the idea exactly. and yes. all of that. And you that cannot clarity. let the technology, the technology doesn't make the substitution for the idea. Yeah, exactly, yes. And a ton of technology without any ideas is just, it's a, yeah. it's a, a demo, <laughs> you know. <laughs> One of the biggest changes, I mean, there's a lot of changes recently, but uh, the biggest change I remember was going from auto transformers and resistance boards to some version of our current boards where you didn't take half an hour to go back four cues Mm -hmm. to run a sequence again. And suddenly you can hit a button and it takes uh, 10 seconds if that to get back to a certain place in the in the show because I, I can remember a couple of the early Broadway shows where you know okay we have to go run this sequence again we want to go back to and you'd sit there and the, the board guys would work backwards in their cue sheets to get the back to where you were before and it took half an hour just to wow because there was no like list of the looks in that individual queue there was just right. the there was just the changes yes right so just and that repeatability the, exactly and, yeah. and it made an, an enormous difference to how we how we do things uh, but but i think also that always brings me back to when you talk about the way things were and, and that kind of stuff the way you remember it is always cooler than it was <laughs> it, <laughs> well yes probably you know no i, I think of things like um you know, sometimes you see this 
photography of some great you know 60s lighting thing and you're like you know it didn't really look like that yeah. it looked like mm-hmm. that in the you know it's it's a manipulation of the photography and all of that yes but, yeah. but i think the same thing happens in your brain i think what you remember it well yeah it's way cooler i, I than, think so you know, yeah well i, I mean i sort of uh, an example of that i once uh, went back and saw the uh, the videotape of uh, tally's folly on broadway at, at lincoln center yeah uh-huh and uh it was pretty much what I remember doing, but it was somehow, it seemed brighter than I remembered it. Not as shadowy as I, you know, obviously the circumstances, you sit there and you, you adjust and stuff, and after a while you've lost track of, to some extent, of what you started out to do and you had to make adjustments because there were needs to be done. But you, you kind of remember it in part what you intended rather than what finally happened. And some of that also may have been they just opened the camera more. Well, that's that's you probably, know. in fact. There were some the camera cameras, guys going the cameras like, it's were too not, freaking dark. Yeah, yeah, the cameras were not as, uh, certainly not as uh, good at yeah. that as they are now. Mm, gentlemen, shall we leave it there? Right. I think so. That's <laughs> sounds a good place to stop. All right. Thank you very, very much, Mike. My, my pleasure. Dennis, thank you You're very, welcome. very much. It was a pleasure to, to do this. I did, Dennis is just one of the legends, and I looked up to Dennis for years and years and still do, and we're lucky to have an artist like Dennis do what, what we do, and it's completely inspiring. No argument no, there. Thank you. <laughs> have a good night, Dennis. Uh, you too. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. You can use the contact form there to let us know what you think, and you can find all of our previous episodes there. We're also on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast and on Twitter at Podcasting Light. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. You can learn more about them at lamedrivers.com. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for downloading, and have a good show. Let's go, come to you.